Alright, well what if somebody told you that all of your debts have been cancelled? I mean all of them. Your student loans, your car payments, your credit card debt, even your mortgage. All of it cancelled, forgiven, paid for. Right? You're taking everybody out to lunch after service, right? Because imagine the, the freedom you would feel, right? The relief, the gratitude, the sense of a new start, a new beginning. Right? And once you felt what it was like to have all that debt off your shoulders, would you ever want to go back into debt again? No, you would want to live a different life, develop different habits, make different decisions. You wouldn't ever want to go back there again. Well, there are few things more burdensome than massive financial debt. But I can think of at least one, and that is guilt. The weight of guilt that we feel before God and sometimes before others can crush you. It can weigh you down. It can, it can depress you. It can... Uh, destroy uh, your sense of purpose. It can rob you of joy. When you think about what it would be like if everybody knew your darkest secrets and held them against you, what it would be like to stand before God and uh, have all of your uh, sin exposed and meet his just anger and wrath against that sin, the weight of that is absolutely terrifying. But what if somebody told you that all of your sin had been paid for? All of it had been forgiven. All of it had been taken away. All of your greed, all of your lust, All of your immorality and pride and selfish ambition and sinful anger, every bit of it wiped away. Every way you've hurt other people by your words, by your actions, by your indifference, all of it wiped clean. No fear of a guilty verdict. No threat of punishment. No condemnation whatsoever. What a gift that would be. What a relief that would bring to know that the judge of the universe, the one who knows everything and whose verdict counts above all others, to know that his verdict for you would would be not guilty, no condemnation. Imagine the freedom you would feel, the relief, the gratitude, the sense of a new start, a new beginning. Wouldn't you try to live differently after that? Wouldn't that change some of your desires, some of your priorities, some of your habits? That's not a mere wish or fancy, like having all of our debts cleared for us might be. That's a reality for everyone who is in Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. These are... Tremendous verses, powerful verses. In some sense, this is the the climax of of all that Paul has been teaching and arguing and and laying out for us in the book of Romans. And 
it is, it's difficult to, to, uh, to really give these verses the, the, the weight and attention that they deserve. They're just so rich, but we'll do the best we can and, and uh, turn our attention to these this morning. So let me read for us these first four verses for us again before we dig into what they mean and, and how they apply to our lives. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This first verse of Romans chapter 1, if it's not one that you have hidden away in your mind and your heart, I encourage you to do so. Just let this wash over you and let this play in the, in the background of your mind throughout the day that there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. No condemnation. Satan all the time is trying to heap condemnation on you, right? Remind you of all the ways that you're guilty, all the ways that you fall short, all the reasons why God ought to be angry with you, displeased with you, all those things. But the Bible says if you are in Christ, God has no condemnation for you. Not a little bit, not a a drop, no condemnation at all. And the reason why I say this is a climax is because remember where Paul started this argument that he's been unfolding for us in Romans. He started in chapter 118 by saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. That God has a holy and just anger that is aimed at all humanity because all of us have sinned and he spent the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, making sure that all of us knew that we were not the exception to that. It didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. didn't matter if you were uh, moral or immoral. didn't matter if you were a, a monotheistic Jew or if you were a polytheistic pagan. Everybody has broken God's law. Everybody has sinned and rebelled against God. And everybody deserves God's wrath. God's condemnation. But then Paul began to unfold for us in the middle of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 and into chapter 5. How he has made provision for us to escape that wrath through his son and his death on the cross and His resurrection and how if we trust in Jesus and we abandon our sin and put our faith in Him that Christ died as our propitiation, our wrath-bearing sacrifice so that our sins would be fully atoned for and that we could once again be right with God and even as he says at the beginning of chapter 5, have peace with God. But then in chapter 7... We had this long sort of introspective section where Paul was 
wrestling with the sin that remains in him and in us even as believers. And he talks about how even as a Christian, even as a new creation in Christ, and someone who loves God's law and wants to do what pleases God, that he often finds himself doing the exact opposite of what he wants to do. He still does the things he hates. He, he still sins. He still breaks God's law. He, he still does things that dishonor and displease God. And it brought him to a place probably not just once, but multiple times, of, of deep distress and anguish where he cried out, I am a wretched man, and who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And he ended chapter 7 saying that he remains a conflicted and divided man who serves God with his mind, the law of God with his mind, but serves the law of sin with his flesh. And so he seemed to think it fitting to remind us at this point that despite the fact that becoming a Christian has not made you sinless, despite the fact that becoming a Christian does not mean that you are now perfect, that you now uh, always and only do what is pleasing to God, despite the fact that you remain conflicted, you remain in a battle, you remain a sinner, it is still true what he said back in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, that all of your sins have been pardoned, and the way he says it now is there's no condemnation for you. No condemnation for you. No guilt. No fear of punishment. That is tremendous news. But we want to know how it works. How does this happen? How can this possibly be true? How can God do this? Well, the first thing we notice about this is that he says this is true for those who are in Christ. It's not true for everybody. It's not a blanket statement it's as though God has just said, you know what, I tried to get you guys to do the right thing, and you can't seem to do it, and so just forget it. Just forget that there are any rules. Just forget that I have any expectations. Just forget it, and I won't hold any of you accountable, and just do whatever you want. That, that's not <clears throat> what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you are in Christ... Right? Remember, the way you get in Christ is simply by trusting in Christ. When you trust in Christ, you are united to Him. You are joined to Him. This is what chapter 6 was about. Remember, Paul said, if you belong to Jesus, if you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, that means you have been joined to Jesus in such a way that what Jesus has accomplished has now become true for you. His Death is your death. His resurrection means your resurrection because he has died to sin. Now you have died to sin and been set free from sin because he has raised from, been raised from the dead. You have been raised to new life and will one day be raised bodily from the dead. What has happened to him applies now to you because you have been joined to him by faith. That's what it means to be in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're in Christ And in Christ, Paul says, there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Jesus. And he connects this to what he was saying at the beginning of chapter 7, looking backward a little bit. This verse, we we know that when we come across the word therefore, 
We're supposed to ask what the therefore is therefore, and usually it's drawing a conclusion from the last thing that was just said, like in the previous verse or two. But if you look back at, chapter, at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 7, Romans 8.1 doesn't seem to be the logical conclusion of that state of those statements, right? So where is he drawing this conclusion from? And this puzzled me this week as I was uh, thinking about these verses and, and studying, and I was, I was helped by somebody who pointed out, and I've never thought about this before, but I think he's right, that the therefore in verse 1 is actually going back to verses 1 through 6 of Romans chapter 7, where Paul says that we have died with Christ, and so we've been set free from the law, and now we're no longer under the old covenant with the law of Moses, but as he says in verse 6, we are, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Meaning, <clears throat> because we now belong to Jesus, we're no longer captive to the law, we are now set free, we have new life, and we're members of the new covenant, and one of the primary signs that we belong to this new covenant body of believers is that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, and so we're no longer under the old covenant with the law, we're members of the new covenant in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, and it's because of that that there's no condemnation for us. And verses 7 to 25, the rest of Romans chapter 7, you can sort of imagine putting that in parentheses in your mind. That's sort of a long digression answering the objection that Paul knew was going to come of people saying, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying we're, we were captive to the law, we needed to be set free from the law so we could bear fruit for God. Are you saying the law is bad? And the whole rest of the chapter was answering that question. And then chapter 8, he comes back to where he left off at the beginning of chapter 7 about us now having the Spirit and belonging to Christ and not being slaves to the law anymore. And he says, therefore, because of that, there is now no condemnation for you. Because you've been set free from the law, you've been set free from death, now you're in Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit. That's why God no longer has any condemnation for you. So he looks backward with that therefore, but he also looks forward to verses 2 and 3 and 4. And in verses 2 and 3 in particular, here's what he says. There is no condemnation for you because of what all three persons of our triune God have done to rescue you from sin and death. In chapter or excuse me in verse 2, he describes the work of the Holy Spirit in delivering us from sin and death. And then in verse 3, he describes the work of the Father and the Son in delivering us from sin and death. So if we have one God who exists in three persons, and all three persons have been instrumental in delivering us from sin, then do we have any reason to fear that any member of the, of the Trinity would pronounce a verdict of condemnation upon us? No. Absolutely not. So that's what Paul's doing in verse 2 and 3. He's showing us every person of the Trinity, all three members of the Godhead, have been at work delivering us 
from our sin. And that's why we know there's no condemnation for us. So what did the Spirit do? And that's what verse 2 is about. See, the little word for there at the beginning of verse 2, he's explaining how this works, how this verdict of no condemnation has been pronounced over us. Why did that happen? Because for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the word law there, he's using not in the sense of the law of Moses, right? We saw this uh, back in verse 23 of chapter 7 also. He's using it as uh, a, a principle, a power, something that you observe at work. Like we talk about the laws of nature or the laws of physics. Right? Nobody made those laws except for God, right? We just observe them. We notice this is how this always works, right? This is how if, if you, you know, drop something, it falls, right? If you hit something, it moves. If you hit it hard enough. These, these are not laws that we've written or created. They're things that we have observed. And Paul says, is using the, the word law the same way here. The law of the Spirit is the, the power, the activity of the Spirit that we observe whenever the Spirit is at work. The, the power of the Spirit of life, the work of the Spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit, has set us free in Christ Jesus, from the law, the power of sin and death. So the Holy Spirit himself, when he came and took up residence in us as believers, when we turn to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, he liberates us. He delivers us from the power of sin and death that had held us captive. And that's what so much of chapter 6 and chapter 7 were about, that we were enslaved to sin, and as a result of our sin, we were held captive to death. But it is the Holy Spirit who has come to take up residence in us and deliver us, not only from sin, but from its consequences, from death, so that we're rescued from those powers. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer subject uh, to the power of death. Uh, We will die, but we will be raised from the dead by the Spirit and uh, enjoy bodily life with Jesus forever. So both of those powers have been defeated for us by the work of the Spirit. Now, think about this. Would God go through the trouble to set you free from the powers of sin and death only to later condemn you for those very sins that you had committed. No, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? Right? Would he give you his spirit for the purpose of delivering you and then pronounce you guilty in the end? No, if he gives you his spirit to deliver you from sin, to deliver you from death, He's not going to abandon you or condemn you at the end. He has given you His Spirit to deliver you so that you won't have to experience that verdict of condemnation. So that you will be rescued. Now, how is it that He sent the Spirit to deliver us this way? How, how is it that, that the Spirit was able to, uh, to come into our lives and deliver us in this way? Well, that's what He explains in verse 3. 
He returns to the work of God the Father. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, let me pause there for a moment and just highlight the fact that he is focusing on the Father's work in saving us, in rescuing us. And the reason why I think it's so important to notice that is because it's not uncommon for us to think that Jesus loves us. We're confident about that. Not as confident about the Father. And it's easy for us to slip into this way of thinking where we think Jesus is the one who gave his life for us. Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself for us. Jesus is the one who we see so much love and compassion in. But the Father we still tend to associate with anger and wrath and judgment and justice and all those kinds of things. But we don't get that from the Bible, at least not from a full reading of the Bible. That, that, that's a misunderstanding of the nature of God and the work of God. Because it's very clear all throughout the New Testament that everything that Jesus did for us was initiated by the Father. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he said, I only do what I see the Father do. I speak the words that the Father has given me to speak. I do the works the Father has given me to do. Everything I do, everything I say, is to show you what the Father is like. So everything that Jesus did for us is not only an expression of Jesus' love and compassion toward us, but of the Father's love and compassion for us. And so here, before Paul tells us what Jesus did, he tells us, Behind the work of the Son is the sending of the Father, is the plan of the Father. God the Father is the one who did this. And what did He do? Well, He did what the law couldn't do. The law could not deliver us. The law could not rescue us. The law could not keep us from sin. The law could not make us righteous. Why? Here's this question again. Is there something wrong with the law? No. Paul says the law was weakened by the flesh. What's that mean? The problem was with us. Because of our sinful flesh, because of our sinful nature, when the law came and told us what to do, we did the opposite. That's what a lot of chapter 7 was about. It was not the law's fault. We were the problem. So God the Father stepped in and did what the law could not do. Rescued us. Saved us. And how did He do that? By sending His own Son. This was not a small thing. This was not a minor work on the Father's part. His very own Son He sent, and and He says He sent His own Son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh, meaning He became just like us, except for He didn't sin. So the likeness of sinful flesh, He's like us. He's not sinful. He doesn't have sinful flesh. He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He becomes as like us as it's possible for Him to be without Himself sinning. Right? He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, sent by the Father, 
And he sent him not only in the likeness of sinful flesh. So this is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is Jesus taking on humanity, remaining fully and totally divine, but now also becoming fully and truly man. And he sent him for sin, meaning to deal with sin. That's the reason Jesus came. That's the reason the Father sent him, to deal with sin. And how did he deal with sin through his Son? It says, he condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? In Jesus' flesh. He took on himself the likeness of sinful flesh so that God the Father could condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, the reason why Jesus came the way that he did and the reason why Jesus died the way that he did was so that nobody could say that God's forgiveness was sort of the religious version of cooking the books. Right? We're just going to move these numbers around. We're just going to skirt this sin around. We'll just pretend like that's not here and just move this over here and just kind of shift some things around so nobody will see. And then we can say all these people are forgiven and they can come into my presence and enjoy the kingdom of God. And God didn't do that. Sin was committed in the flesh. Sin took up residence in the flesh. After Adam and Eve sinned, all of us came under the power and dominion of sin in our flesh. And so God sent His Son in the flesh. He hung on the cross in the flesh, taking our sin upon His own shoulders. And as He hung there, God pronounced upon His own Son a guilty verdict. Not for His own sin, but for our sin. He punished, He condemned our sin in the flesh of His Son so that He could speak over us the verdict, not guilty. No condemnation. Now, once He does that for us, shouldn't that change something? Right? So if somebody forgives all of your debt, right, you're going to go run up three or four more credit cards worth of debt? No, you, you're going to do something different. right? Once your sin has been forgiven and the Spirit of God has come to dwell inside of you, you're, you're going to live differently. You're not going to live perfectly. Romans 7 has made that really clear, right? We're, we're not going to live perfectly. But Romans 7 is not meant to make us walk in defeat. It's, well, I mean, we're, just, we're going to sin, so might as well just make peace with that. No. No, we're also going to be different. There's going to be a struggle. We're in a battle, but we have really and truly been changed. And this is part of the purpose of God sending His Son to deal with sin. Notice verse 4. He says, He did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that though before you were 
a believer, you knew the law, and you knew what you were supposed to do, and, and you couldn't do it. Right? It was not possible for you. Now that Christ has come and borne your condemnation and purchased your forgiveness and given you new life and the Spirit of God dwells in you, now you can and do fulfill the law. When Paul was saying at the beginning of Romans 7 that, that we were set free from our captivity through the law, to the law through Christ, he was not saying God has abandoned all hope of anybody ever doing what the law says we're supposed to do. No, what God was doing was he was providing a, a different way for us to fulfill the law because we couldn't fulfill it on our own. Without the Spirit, apart from Christ, with our sin nature holding us captive, it was not possible for us to do the things that God had created us to do. To love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. It was just not possible for us to do that. But now that we've been set free and given new life and filled by the Spirit, now, He says, as we walk according to the Spirit, we do fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We do the things that God created us to do, designed us to do, called us to do. Again, we don't do them perfectly, but we do them truly. We have been changed. Our life is new. We are filled and empowered by the Spirit so that out of us comes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. In fact, these are the things, this is his bigger point, these are the things that fulfill the law. So God has saved us, not merely to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. He saved us to change us. He saved us not only to forgive us, but also to make us new. He died so that you would not be condemned, but also so that you could love your wife and forgive your enemies and teach your children to love and trust God. So, don't let Romans 7 persuade you that you're stuck in a futile struggle against sin. It is a struggle, but it's not futile. You have been changed. And though we often fall and fail, there is another part of the story. The Spirit of God Himself dwells inside of you. The Spirit of God has set you free from the power of sin. The Spirit of God is living within you to give you the power to obey God and to fulfill His righteous requirements. That's why He saved you. That's why He set you free from that condemnation. So that you can live a new, transformed life to His glory. Let's pray.